This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 47, June 22, 1983. First of all, I want to apologize that occasionally I say things backwards on some of these easy chairs. Too often I'm shuffling papers, trying to find a page in a book, or get the material next in line uh, for my discussion. And as a result, I get a little absent-minded. For example, Dorothy called my attention to two, three blunders I made recently. Among other things, on, I think, easy chair number 45, I said Edward IV of England uh, was an heir to the throne of uh, Spain. Well, it was France, of course. So you'll have to forgive me my uh, frequent errors of that sort. I forgot where all I've been since I was last with you. <laughs> I get uh, so that the trips become a kind of blur. I'm gone so much. But I'll tell you very briefly about two days I spent this past weekend with a black church where I've had uh, some previous fellowship with the men and tried to be of help to them and have enjoyed knowing the men very well. They are outstanding men, both of them, pastors together of a small congregation in a city about 400 miles from here. Well, they have a facility that the city is trying to shut down. They have a Christian school, they have their own welfare program, and they have a ministry to people throughout their area. They have a congregation that is about a third black, a third Mexican, and a third white. They're doing remarkable work in reaching the people who are really poor and are having problems. On top of all this, they have bought an old hotel and are going to cons uh, convert it into a home for the street peoples, and at the same time to have a mission there for them. Well, of course, today cities are trying to zone rescue missions out of business, and how much more so the kind of work these people have, because while the facilities they have have a tremendous potential if they could put some money into them, every time they get money, they put it into expanding their services and helping people. They go to wholesale food places to try to get uh, broken or discarded, or banged up packages, and distribute these to the poor. They're doing a remarkable work. It was uh, an interesting thing for me, too, because I took Dorothy along. And Dorothy, who is uh, of a Pennsylvanian background for, oh, a couple of hundred years, a Scottish family, uh, she had never been to such a church before, and it was, you might say, a, possibly a cultural shock, but uh, I didn't think it would be so. I figured she'd love it, and she did. As a matter of fact, she sat there deeply moved with, uh, in great happiness and with tears of joy in her eyes as she listened to those people praising God. 
it was for her a marvelous experience. And she told me after, as she thought of those people and the work they are doing, against the opposition of the city fathers who want to shut them down, she was reminded of a black woman she knew back in the 30s. This woman, in the course of her conversation, was full of praise for God. And at one point she burst out looking upward to God. She said, you saved me, Lord, and you'll never hear the end of it. I think that's marvelous. I wish we had more people like that in the general population. But you'd think most Christians had no gratitude to God for their salvation. Because go to almost any church in the country and you think you walked into the congregation of the holy lemon suckers. They are the sourest people imaginable. They've got everything. You look at the cars parked in the uh, parking lot. You look at the clothes they have on. And uh, you wonder... Why in the world are these people so sour? There's no gratitude in them. They bellyache about everything. They turn the minister's life into hell. As a matter of fact, I know one successful pastor who has had nothing but grief from the people despite all the success of his ministry. There's always a group of chronic complainers. And it is literally killing him. What he has is another congregation of holy lemon suckers. Now take a good look at yourself. Do you belong to the lemon suckers church? How much is there of the lemon sucker in you? Is there anything remotely like that black woman of the 30s that Dorothy knew who said, you saved me, Lord? and you'll never hear the end of it. Has God ever heard anything of gratitude from you? Well, that was a little sermon. But uh, to go back to these men, there's some interesting things happening because these men are very steadily moving into the conservative camp for a good reason. I'm not saying they're moving into the Republican camp or the Democratic camp. They're moving into the conservative camp as Christian conservatives. And the reason is this. All they ever see of the federal or the state or the county or city government is a big deal over helping poor people, which means, as far as they're concerned, that another la-di-da suite of offices has been set up with somebody from a minority group to get a cushy salary and to study people and to do next to nothing. And they've had it. They have no respect for these people. I know that one of our Chalcedon men is helping this particular congregation with their legal problems. He has had uh, an attorney offer his services voluntarily to help them. And the attorney is really distressed. They're wonderful people, he says, but they don't do anything right. They never follow his recommendations. 
And that's understandable because they've got only so much money and they're not going to waste their time fighting with the city fathers. They've got their father's business to do, and so they do it. And as far as they're concerned, the uh, civil authorities are a roadblock, which unhappily is the truth. There was an article, by the way, that touched on a slightly related issue. Recently, a study was made of the Latin Americans in this country and their voting patterns. The Democrats have thought they had them in their pocket. I think they've had them largely because the Republicans never bothered with them. They're not our kind of people, you know. Well, it turns out the Latin voters are very militantly anti-communist. And neither party has done anything to capitalize on that. Look for trouble in the future, because those people are going to get fed up with the kind of politics they have been getting. Well, it was a very interesting time. I enjoyed it immensely. It uh, left both Dorothy and I feeling very, very good. We were among Christians who were joyful and grateful. And God knows they didn't have that very much to be grateful about. But in their praise service, they were thanking God for all the good gifts he was showering upon them. I think if most people in this country had such few gifts, they would be ready to blow their brains out. So... It was a marvelous and a joyful experience. I told them that I felt that I had been blessed by being there, and I meant every word of it. Well, now on to something else. The current Reader's Digest for June 1983 has a condensation of uh, Barron's book on the KGB. The title of the condensation is The Spy Who Knew Too Much. Probably a number of you have read it. I mention that because usually the condensations done by the Reader's Digest are good. Very often an article is improved by their working on it. However, this condensation, I'm glad they retitled because it does not represent the book. The book by John Barron, entitled... KGB Today, The Hidden Hand, published for 1995 in 1983 by the Reader's Digest Association, or the Reader's Digest Press, is a remarkable work of some 489 pages and intensely interesting. I do believe that uh, it is an excellent picture of what is happening today, of the nature of the KGB, of the kind of men who are running it, and so on. In the course, it does give some very, very interesting data that uh, deals with more than the KGB. For example, on page 11 and on pages 287 following, 
Baron gives a list of the congressmen who worked with the communists. And he cites this um, fact. The well, let me read from page 11. The House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence in December 1982 released the record of hearings it conducted regarded Soviet active measures, along with testimony heard. The published record contains exhibits comprised of the studies or documents submitted by the CIA and the FBI. Making a final check of a few points David Pachalczyk studied this exhibit 11 in my office late at night. Suddenly, he exclaimed, My God, they've doctored the document. In preparing exhibit 11, the House Committee artfully deleted significant sections of an original document. The portions excised revealed names of congressmen who had joined Soviet agents in meetings at the Capitol advocating disarmament. Baron gives these names. This is one of a number of very, very interesting things. Uh, then about some of the problems in uh, the Soviet Union, something you never hear about. Packs of teenagers who murder people on the streets for the purpose of the excitement of watching someone die. Thrill killers. And this is increasingly commonplace. Then he also has, on page 239, a summation of a great deal of the data that he provides. Uh, American taxpayers directly subsidize KGB operations mounted out of the New York residency of the UN. But this fact I'm saving for the last because I think it is so revealing. It has to do with life expectancy in the Soviet Union. And I quote from page 24. A Soviet male born in the mid-1960s could expect to live 60 years, 66 years. Jeffrey Baldwin of the U.S. Census Bureau's Foreign Demographic Analysis Branch deduces that by 1980, the year true communism was due, the life expectancy of a newborn Soviet male had slipped to 62 years. Already at the beginning of the 1970s, a male child born in the Soviet Union could be expected to live 10 years less than a newborn girl, Feshbach notes. Now the difference is 11.6 years. No other developed country has such a gap. The unprecedented increase in infant mortality and decrease in life expectancy results in part from the inadequacies of the Soviet medical system, and so on. But the fact is, it has to do more than, uh, with more than uh, the medical system. It's always been bad. 
Life simply is not worth living in the Soviet Union for an increasingly larger number of people. And the result is their life expectancy is decreasing. Now on to something else of very great importance. As most of you know, one of our staff members who lives just down the road here, Otto Scott, has written The Secret Six, which is a study of John Brown and the abolitionist movement. The point that Otto Scott makes in this book is that John Brown was not a patriotic man nor a real Christian saint. He was a hired killer, a professional killer. Behind him was the Secret Six, some wealthy Unitarians who were abolitionists and who wanted to provoke war. This thesis is very powerfully set forth and very, very carefully documented by Otto Scott, who deals not only with the top six, the moneyed men, but with the intellectuals on the lower echelons, men like Emerson. Now, we have a very interesting thing. Remember, the secret six were Unitarians. There was a close connection between Unitarianism and revolution, Unitarianism and abolition. Well, in the South, secession was the Unitarian cause. Secession was first developed as a political thesis by Calhoun, a Unitarian. It was very unpopular with all Orthodox Christians for a long time, simply because it was regarded as a Unitarian and a lawless doctrine. Unhappily, in 1860, there had been a decline in the faith in both the North and the South. So religiously, both the North and the South were at a very low ebb. As a consequence, the Unitarians, with their intense faith, did tend to dominate the scene, even though they were a minority. Now, remember, Unitarianism in the North meant abolition. In the South, secession. In both places, revolution. Well, a book was published a few years ago, no longer available, but only recently did I become aware of it. The title is Toward a Patriarchal Republic, The Secession of Georgia by Michael P. Johnson, published by Louisiana State University Press, Baton Rouge, in 1977. <clears throat> this book, of course, does not go into the broad sweep of things as Otto Scott does, because Otto deals with the philosophical and the religious background he deals with the specifics of the uh, plan, the attempt to create war, the reaction of the press to it, and so on. What Johnson, who, by the way, is a Southerner, although currently teaching in California, what Johnson has done is to look at what happened in Georgia 
after the election of Lincoln. The convention that was held, the voting for the convention, and the decision of the convention to secede from the Union. <clears throat> the point he makes very tellingly is this, and he does not go into the religious issues at all. The secessionists did not command Georgia. They knew they did not. As a result, they had to wage a planned campaign in the media and across the state to intimidate all the pro-union men. Now remember, the majority of voters in Georgia were not slave owners. They did not like slavery. Outside of South Carolina, the majority of Southerners were anti-slavery. It was feared, therefore, that in state after state, outside of South Carolina, the sentiment would be pro-union. But these people were determined that it would not be. The result was intimidation. They made threats and they carried out threats. And in some areas it meant such things as tarring and feathering people, literally. Then the statements were made before the election of Lincoln, and I quote, if Lincoln is elected, we will go for revolution. And if you oppose us, we will ring you into it. And if you refuse us, we will brand you as traitors and chop off your heads. As a matter of fact, in Savannah, for example, only one set of candidates was put on the ballot for the uh, convention. In the rural areas, usually there were two. But the idea was to intimidate anyone who opposed secession. Now, ironically, the pro-secessionists spoke of slavery as though it were the greatest, most beneficent system ever devised by the mind of man to care for the blacks. And they said, and I quote, we love the institution of slavery as we love our laws and our social life, our sunshine and our showers, our soil and its fruits. This feeling pervades all classes, which was not true. It has grown up with our polity. We have inherited it as a people. It is made vital and vigorous by daily association. It is an heirloom of the state. It is part of our religion. Now this is what the leaders of secessionism had to say. At the same time, they praised slavery so highly, they also said that uh, they would have to leave the Union because to stay in the Union meant submission. And I'm quoting, submission is slavery, and slavery is worse than death. So they had a very uh, contradictory position. 
slavery as a marvelous system, and slavery is worse than death. Well, it's a telling account because it shows the pattern county by county as far as voting was concerned. A large portion of the state had a very limited number of slave owners. Those areas were strongly pro-union and voted pro-union. As a matter of fact, the election was won by the pro-union men, but the people controlling the machinery of the state were pro-secessionist, and they released fraudulent returns. So at the convention, the pro-union men, loving their state, decided they had little choice but to go along. They weren't going to try to remain an island in their county. Secession, thus, in Georgia was a fraud. There is reason to believe that the same was true in almost every other state. Johnson makes this comment, which I think is very telling. He says of the secessionists that, and I quote, they were more like the abolitionists than they would have cared to admit, unquote. What Johnson does not at all go into is the fact that they were like the abolitionists. They were both Unitarians. They were distrustful of the small white farmer who disliked slavery, disliked slave owners, and was pro-union because he was afraid of the control by these slave owners. They had reason to be, because some of the leaders in Georgia called for a constitutional monarchy. It is interesting, too, that these people were men given to a Hegelian point of view. This is never discussed by uh, Johnson, but he does call attention to the fact that uh, the pro-union men, by and large, believed in the basic harmony of interests rather than the conflict of interests, as the secessionists and the abolitionists believe. This means they were, of course, Hegelians. They believed in thesis-antithesis leading to synthesis, which immediately led to conflict all over again, perpetual war for perpetual peace. Another very interesting fact is that having created a secessionist state, they immediately voted not to allow the slave trade to resume. Now, this is a very interesting point, and they spelled out their hostility to the idea of more slaves being brought from Africa. The real reason was that it would mean a lot of cheap slaves again, and cheap slaves would mean that any poor white farmer could be as rich as they were and have as many slaves. And the southern aristocracy was determined to remain an aristocracy, and the idea of more slaves being brought into the country was anathema to them because they didn't want the poor white farmer to improve in his social status.
It's quite a telling book, very interesting, coming from someone who lived in an area of the old Confederacy. There were those who opposed the whole thing. Uh, I quote from page 68, voters in low slaveholding areas ignored the advice of the Democratic leaders they had followed for years, nearly all of whom were fire eaters. They remained skeptical that the protection of slavery was of primary importance to them. Perhaps most interesting of all, they shrugged off secessionist warnings of the racial mixture and bloody servile insurrection that failure to secede would entail. To Governor Brown's charge that it is the design of the North as a general thing to put the people of the South on an equality with the Negro, the Virginian, this was one of them writing under the name of the Virginian, responded in terms that voters in low slaveholding countries might well have agreed with. Northerners, the Virginian wrote, cannot put the people of the South on an equality with a Negro worse than what the people of the South practice every day. For there are men of the South that have Negro women for their wives, buy them for that purpose, and I know personally this to be a fact. What is the propriety of accusing a people, the Northerners, of a design that we all ready practice more than they do? Unquote. Now, that was the bitterness of the Union men in the South, expressing itself. And, of course, it led to an insistence by the secessionists on a solid South approach. You didn't break. You maintained the unity of front that the South felt was essential in order to wage war. Well, that element, insisting on unity, has capitalized on that ever since. I think the freedom of the South is really ahead of us. The more the solid South breaks up, the more that influence of the element that led to secessionism will be broken. That element in its northern wing is still in power. The Unitarian, humanistic influence governs this country. Let's hope the South, at least, leads the way in destroying that emphasis amongst them. This is a very important book and a very important thesis. Now to something else. There is a very interesting article in The Intellectual Activist, Volume 3, Number 8, for June 9, 1983. I don't know the price of this by the single number. Oh, yes, past issues, 250 each. And these can be had from the Intellectual Activist, 131 Fifth Avenue, Suite 101, New York, NY, 10003. The article that takes up most of the issue is the flat tax diversion. It deals with the idea of a flat tax to replace the present income tax. And their thesis is, and I quote, this flat rate campaign is a dangerous fraud. 
It is dangerous because it would open up to the government a massive sum of currently protected income. It would give the IRS access potentially to about 60% more income. Some $275 billion goes uncollected now in taxes because of various deductions in return for a promise to reduce rates. Tax deductions are havens from the coercive taxing power of the state, monetary sanctuaries legally off-limits to the IRS. Abolishing them would be to surrender an important safeguard, one that the government will never give back in exchange for a benefit lower rates that will inevitably rescind it. For when taxes are raised in the future, as they surely will be, the IRS will certainly not offer to reinstate the tax deductions it took away. And this campaign is a fraud, because its purported goals of efficiency, simplicity, and economic incentives serve only to camouflage its true purpose. The aim is old-fashioned loophole closing, not the kind of nickel-and-dime scheme tried by Jimmy Carter against the three-martini lunch or by Ronald Reagan against the earners of dividends and interest, but a wholesale effort to create an enormous new source of tax revenue. This expanding the definition of tax taxable income and denying the taxpayer a means of keeping his private wealth from public use is what makes the idea so attractive to the Washington Post and to Ralph Nader. The prospect of lower tax rates is just a diversionary sop. As Senator Bill Bradley, whose Fair Tax Act has been accorded the most favorable reception of all the flat tax proposals, said in explaining his priorities, we have always tried to close loopholes before from a kind of position of self-righteousness or moral superiority when what we are really doing here is closing loopholes with a carrot, and that carrot is lower tax rates. The article goes on with a great deal more, pointing out that if it's passed, there's nothing to prevent next year a 10 or 15% flat tax being raised to 20 and then to 25 and so on. Nothing is going to be done by the flat taxers to end deficits or to cut spending. Switching, he, the article goes on to say, to a single rate tax would require the lower brackets to suffer a tax increase an intolerable increase given today's high tax levels. While it is true that under the graduated tax, above-average income earners pay far too much, the overriding problem is that today everyone pays too much. By raising some people's taxes even more, the flat tax just substitutes one injustice for another. A flat tax is appropriate only when it would raise no one's taxes. And that can happen only if there is a significant contraction in the size of government, that is, a cut in spending and in total taxes. A flat rate in the context of sharply reduced tax revenues would apportion taxes more justly and would benefit all taxpayers, with some merely enjoying a smaller cut than others. 
outside that context, it is unjustifiably premature. But to call for a flat tax now is a fatal diversion, drawing attention away from its absolute precondition, a radically smaller government. The point is well taken. As long as you have big government, taxes are only going to go up. And the more uh, power you give them in taxing, the more those taxes are going to go up. As a result, the flat tax will do a great deal of damage to all of us. There are a number of good items, as usual, in the Intellectual Digest. Uh, intellectual Activist. A couple of them before I proceed. The Reagan administration's attempt to curtail the taxpayer-funded activism of the Legal Services Corporation has been under attack by the American Civil Liberties Union. The White House wants, for example, to forbid LCS lawyers from effecting the passage of laws by lobbying legislatures on behalf of their clients. But the ACLU, in its May newsletter, insists that any attempt to keep this government poverty agency from using public funds to influence legislators is a major governmental intrusion into the lawyer-client relationship. This uh, on criminals and injustice. The average defendant in Manhattan criminal court, according to District Attorney Robert Morgenthau, has seven prior arrests. And 29% of defendants have outstanding cases pending at the time of arrest. So much for justice in our courts. Well, a number of other things uh, I'd like to call attention to. I'd like to read this letter from one of you, from Phil Spielman. And he says, Dear Rush, I just saw something on TV last night that set me to thinking about why it is that the Western intellectual takes such a hostile position towards his own country. Just recently, activist communist Angela Davis addressed the local high school graduate, uh, graduates with the enjoiner to become involved, uh, and involved, that is, in feminism, fighting sexism, Reagan, El Salvador, etc. So many times I have been a part of a group of one kind or another where some dominant egghead always has to let everyone know his opinions, and they are always hateful. Some stinging incitement, some scathing denunciation, some biting mockery made of a cause usually no one is really concerned about. Often I wonder, who really cares what he thinks? Centered here in Transland, that's Berkeley, as I am, I can always go down to the big U whenever I want and find someone to engage me in as shallow or deep a conversation about any ism I might choose. So why the general need to broadcast the seeds of resentment to captive audiences? Answer, there is no real need. There is only a need to be exalted and worshipped as someone important. And in a free society with its free markets to measure one's worth, the worthless egoist yearns for prison for a closed, dead system, 
where he stands a chance of affecting everyone else, whether they like it or not. I have long insisted that the famous Descartes axiom has been mistranslated. It should read, I stink, therefore I am. With a totally planned out, uh, with a totality planned out by the central committees, the radical would have a great response from society. Last night's program was an interview of some Russian writers who had immigrated to the U.S. The most revealing remarks were made by one man who said, and I'm sorry I didn't get the name, I miss the KGB. They were the first ones to read my manuscripts. I was a writer. I felt important. I felt like a real person in Russia. I feel like a victim in democracy, for I am free but have no security. I am lost. Only a re reformation will save us. Sincerely, Phil. Well, thank you, Phil. That says it all. Of course, a lot of the people who do come out of the Soviet Union are horrified by supermarkets. They feel they are so wasteful. They feel that there shouldn't be anything there but a shortage to keep things from being too plentiful. Well, I have several other things here. I'd like to call attention very briefly to a new book just published for five ninety-five by... Crossway Books, and Crossway Books is in Westchester, Illinois, 60153. The title, Book Burning by Cal Thomas, deals with the liberal suppression of books and ideas that they disapprove of all the while screaming that we Christians are book burners and censors. It's a devastating analysis dealing with the very present situation. As he puts it very bluntly on page 126, the media creates news. And he gives good evidence of that. I strongly recommend this book. It was just published, in fact, it hasn't quite reached most bookstores. Well, now on to something in a very, very light vein, because I'm not going to get started with a couple of other things. In fact, I've got a couple of things in a light vein, but this I'll read first. And it's an article uh, in the Farm Journal for April 1983, entitled, Women Like This Give Farm Wives a Bad Image. I quote, Shortly before they were married, Dad asked Mom if she knew what a countershaft drive belt guard was. Mom replied that she didn't. It almost broke their engagement. And it has been regretted ever since. Not the marriage, the fact that for over two decades, Mom has been unable to bring home the right spare part for broken machinery. They were married in June 1959. In July, Dad sent Mom to town for a replacement. Her encounter with a serviceman went something like this. M Mom laid down the broken part. The man behind the counter said, What's it from, ma'am? The tractor. Which tractor, ma'am? My husband's. Does he think she thought I go around taking parts off other men's tractors? Ma'am, I need to know what kind of a tractor. 
Mom thought, why do I get all the dizzy ones? A John Deere tractor, isn't it obvious? Would I bring a broken farm all apart to a John Deere shop? Why do I get all the ignorant ones? No, ma'am, what size tractor? Size, oh, I suppose it's maybe six feet high, no more than six and a half. Lady, is it a 730, an 830, an R, a D, or what? So it's lady now, whatever happened to ma'am. I'm afraid that I don't know offhand. Maybe if I te if you tell me the choices again. Most kids look forward to getting their driver's license. We dreaded it. It meant we'd be sent out for parts. Take my sister Cheryl. Last year on July the 1st, Cheryl got her license. On July 2, the next day, Dad sent her 30 miles to get drive belts for the combine. She returned empty-handed. When asked why, she replied, they wanted $183 for two belts. I told them I wouldn't pay that much. They couldn't sell them to me for half price, which is still outrageous, or keep them, and, uh, uh, or keep them until the ocean evaporates. Dad, how long uh, do you think it would take the ocean to evaporate? Four years ago, there was a memorable confrontation between my older sister, Kaylin, and the parts man. Kalen strode into the shop, placed a broken needle on the counter, and said, I need this needle for our new Holland Hayliner 277 Baylor. Sorry, miss, we don't carry the part you want. What do you mean, Kalen snapped. Look, just look at this, she demanded, thrusting her outstretched hand in front of the man's face. See my fingernails? I broke these three, helping Dad get this thing off the Baylor. I'll have chewed the remaining nails off by the time I get home, worrying whether or not I got the right part. And you stand there and tell me that you don't have it. I'm afraid we don't, miss. Well, suppose you just tell me why you don't. This is the Heston dealership. New Holland is down the road. You don't outgrow the spare parts syndrome. Last summer, Mom answered the phone. It was Grandma. Marilyn, she said desperately, you've got to help me. Your father wants me to go to town for a part for the tractor. You go for me. Sorry, lady, Mom said. You must have got the wrong number. Marilyn, I know that's you. Don't hang up on me. This is your mother. I want you to go to town and get this part for your father. I can't, Mother. I've got to unclog a drain or something. Mother, I'm 44 years old and can make my own decisions. I'm not going to town for that part. Grandma started crying. You don't love me, she said. Of course I love you. You know that. Now stop crying. I can't. You'd cry too if your husband was going to beat you for bringing home the wrong part. You and Dad have been married for 46 years. He's never laid a hand on you in all that time. He's not going to start now. Grandma cried louder. It's not enough that you don't love me and won't obey me, she wailed. Now you're calling me a liar. What kind of a daughter are you? Mother, I'm going to hang up. The crying stopped. I'll pay you $20, Grandma said. Fifty, Mom bargained. I'd consider thirty. Forty, Mom said. Thirty, and I'll let you come over for Christmas dinner with the rest of the kids this year. Mother, you drive a hard bargain. I'll do it. As soon as she hung up, Mom called Kalen into the room. Kalen, she said, I want you to go to town for me and get a spare part for the tractor. I'll pay you $10. <laughs> One day at the Massey Ferguson dealers, we ran into a one-of-a-kind woman customer. She looked like a model for 
Norman Rockwell's World War II painting of Rosie the Riveter. She plunked down a pulley on a counter and said, I need the bearing that fits in this. It's a rear straw chopper pulley on a 1972 Massey 410 diesel combine with a serial number 452-8574-7473. Mom glared at her. It's women like that, she hissed, that give farm wives a bad image. I don't know why she can't stay home and grow vegetables and flowers, clean house, and watch soap operas. The serviceman brought the lady's part up to her. Next, he said. Here, Mom said, gently laying a sprocket on the counter. What's it from, ma'am? The combine. Which combine, ma'am? My husband's combine. No matter which implement or which tractor or which dealer, it seems the company is forever coming out with a new and improved whatever it is we need, and the man behind the counter always insists it will work in place of the old. It's a little different, but I'll guarantee it will work, he told me. I looked at the new and improved nine-inch square piece sitting beside the broken six-inch round piece. Something told me it wouldn't work. It didn't. Dad can only take so much of Mom or us kids bringing home the wrong parts. He's always saying, if you want anything to get done right, you've got to do it yourself. But while he was gone, whoever was driving the tractor managed to have broken something else. If he asked me, Dad's too particular about these things. He's always complaining about the replacement piece being wrong. Now, I think to myself, so he doesn't hear me, if you would use your imagination, you could get this feeder drive gearbox for a new Holland baler to work on our planner. He never responds. I know, though, that we aren't the only family with this problem. They made a 90-minute newsreel documentary on this farming dilemma, shooting on-the-scene footage of what happened when some wife brings home the wrong spare part. The television version of the 90-minute newsreel lasted 3 minutes and 47 seconds. It was because all the cuss words had been edited out. <laughs> well, that's a delight. Now to another subject very briefly. The Federal Reserve uh, Review of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis for April 1983 has an article on why do food prices increase. And the point of this article, which is a long and rather technical one, is simply that if you want to know what happens to food prices, it's simply inflation. Food prices are the best uh, index to inflation that you can find. And they tell you what's happening better than the papers do. So, as I've told housewives over the years, if you want to know what's happening inflation-wise, the best thing to do is to keep a record of what you pay for staples at the grocery store. And you will see year by year what has happened. As the author concludes, relating money growth to food prices appears to offer a better explanation of what actually produced the food price increases during the 1970s and what is likely to do the same in the 1980s. So uh, that's a definitely worthwhile thing for you to examine. Well, I was intending to read from something that... Uh, Judge Bill Beers and Harriet, his wife, sent to me. It's a delightful article 
from The Spectator for June on the influence of Yiddish on English. And it is surprising how much Yiddish has slipped into English. Let me just quote from portions of it. He, uh, the author, is reviewing uh, in part uh, one of Leo Rostin's books and says, a large chunk of Hooray for Yiddish deals with phrasings and syntax indigenous to Yiddish, which reappear in spoken English, an idiomatic feedback, so to speak, which adapts English words to Yiddish patterns, intonations, inflections, and facial expressions. I expect no reader to use all of them, but I doubt whether a single one does not use some of them. Here is a short list. Big deal. Drop dead. Excuse the expression. Get lost. I need it like a hole in the head. It can't hurt. It shouldn't happen to a dog. I know from nothing. To eat one's heart out. Likewise. No good. No good, Nick. Out of this world. Do or go sue me. So what? So what else is new? For instance, instead of for example. That's for sure. You want to hear something? Who needs it? Enough already. If the reader is surprised by the inclusion of one or uh, the other of these expressions, he may frankly disbelieve that the following ones derive from Yiddish. But Mr. Austin makes a convincing case for all of them. There is, uh, could be, not identical with it could be. Don't ask, in correct English it would be, don't ask me, enjoy without yourself, a transitive verb converted into an intransitive colloquialism. For free, for at no cost. How come? What's up? What's with? For what's the matter with? Or what's wrong with? A special effect is achieved by placing the adjective at the beginning of a sentence, as, as in smart he isn't. Scorn is expressed by placing the direct object before the subject. Thanks, she expects, for losing my credit cards. Two arms, he broke. The race, sure he won. Last place, he won. All this is derived from Yiddish. Yiddish abounds in irony. Uh, Rostin writes, The culture of the Jews is so steeped in orality, so responsive to wit, so studied with repartee, so impatient with the obvious, that it's not surprising that Jewish Jews prize swift deflation, a sample. Do you realize, Gramps, that it costs the U.S. about $10 billion to put a man on the moon? My, my, including meals? Uh, which leads us to Rostin's use of jokes to illustrate the use of certain words. He warns, and before you growl, I read that one before, let me say, so what? Do you stop a pianist who is playing Chopin because you heard that piece before? Jewish culture, he argues, is a joke-making culture. He asks, is Turkish, is Portuguese? Occasionally, the apropos is a bit far-fetched, as in this sample of the English use of from instead of of. To celebrate his mother's birthday, the son sends a bottle of champagne and a jar of caviar. She calls him, Oh, thank you, Seymour, for the fine present. You liked it? The ginger angel I love, darling, but those huckleberries tasted from herring. 
or this one on the use of oil. A mother calls her daughter. So how are you? Terrible, Mom. My back is killing me. The children are acting like wild Indians. The house is a mess, and to top it off, I have six guests for dinner. Stop, darling. I'm coming right over. I'll feed the children, clean up, and do the cooking. Oh, Mama, you angel. How's Papa? Papa? Are you crazy? Papa died nine years ago. Pause. What number are you calling? Alton 64491. This is Alton 64494. Oy, I dialed the wrong number. Wait, please, the girl wailed. Does that mean you're not coming over? <laughs> I know I've reached the number of words my editor allowed me, but I would feel remiss if I didn't give a small sampling of the non-sequiturs and repartees Rostin cited, so characteristic of Yiddish humor. Here they go, stripped of the essentials, to the essentials. A young boy tells his father that a bearded sage has wished him to live to be a hundred and twenty-one. The father explains that Moses lived until a hundred and twenty. But why did the sage say a hundred and twenty-one? Maybe he didn't want you to die suddenly. Another one. Uh, did you hear the story about the two Jews who stop? Why always two Jews? Wouldn't it be just as funny if it was about two Irishmen or two Zulus? Okay, two Zulus meet says one. When is your son going to bar mitzvah, to be bar mitzvah? So the second Zulu says, forget it. <laughs> or this one, the owner of three haberdasheries returns from a vacation in Europe. The climax, he tells, was my audience with the Pope. The Pope? What kind of a man is he? A 44 portly. <laughs> well, thanks, Bill and Harriet. Our time is up, and I'll be with you again in two weeks. And I have some other things here that uh, I intended to get to this time that are still left over from last time. But I'll get around to them eventually. Thank you, and God bless you. And we'll be together in two weeks, Lord willing.